And this morning, we are going to ask ourselves the question, what do we need? What do you need? Sometimes we get our needs confused with our wants. We have so many needs, don't we? At the moment, I suppose most people around the world think that we need a vaccine. What a difference that would make to our world. Some of us, it seems, think they need a mountain of toilet paper to hide behind. Not quite sure how that works, but who knows? Now, many of our desires are really thought of as needs. Some of us need a bigger house or a better car. Colin Buchanan reminds us in his song that the biggest house and the flashiest car, they're all going to fade away. Some of us need a holiday. I wouldn't mind a holiday. Notice the crowds of people trying to get across the, Victor the Queensland border yesterday and probably still today, I expect, trying to get a bit of sunshine and get away from this cold weather we're experiencing at the moment. The things we need, and of course we all need a bit more money, don't we? As I look at the things that we think we need in our affluent society, I think back to the people that we used to work with and live with in Tanzania and what they needed. If they needed a house, they would cobble some mud together and build four walls. And when the sun had dried the walls out sufficiently, they'd spread some branches over the four walls and plaster them with mud. There's a house. That's all they needed. In their house, they would bring up their family, probably eight or ten children. And when the eldest son decided to get married, well, he needed a house, so he'd get some more mud and put an annex on the side of his parents' house. That's all they need. Somehow, I think, the people that we lived there who had so little, who grew as much of their food as they possibly could in their bit of, bit of, bit of land around their house, get all the maize to last a year and pray that the rain would come and enabled it to grow, were more content than many of us. Interesting that the general welcome or greeting used in Tanzania is habari, which means what news? And the answer is always nzuri, good. Whatever your situation, well, there's something good. Often there was a, a but after that, but it was good. Paul wrote to the church in Philippi, saying, not that I was ever in need, for I have learned how to be content with whatever I have. And he encouraged his protege, Timothy, saying, if we have enough food and clothing, let us be content. Well, what do we need? What do we really need? As we turn now to Hebrews chapter 7 and 8, let's ask God to guide us and help us to see what our need really is. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for all that you have given us. 
We thank you for the blessings that you pour upon us day by day. And we pray that we might really see, as we look into your word today, the most important thing, the thing that we truly need, and that we might know and follow you. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, if you've been coming along to this church for a little while, you may remember that we've been doing an occasional series working through Hebrews. And what have we learned? In chapter 1, we discovered that God has revealed himself in many different ways in the past, but now he's revealed himself in a new way, through his son, Jesus. Chapter 2 told us, that we should avoid drifting away from the truth. In chapters 3 and 4, to avoid distractions. And in chapter 4 and 5, that we need someone to stand between us and God. We need a mediator. In chapters 5 and 6, there's a command to leave the elementary things, to turn away from the basics and grow. We need Christian maturity. Well, this book, this letter to the Hebrews, was written by an unknown author, writing to Jewish Christians. They were Jews who had become Christian. They had recognised that Jesus was the Messiah, the one they were waiting for, and they had put their trust in him. But it seems they were in danger of reverting, of going back to the old ways. They'd grown up, they'd been brought up as Jews. They'd been brought up with the Old Testament law. Was that really something that they should leave behind? Or could they just tack Jesus onto that? Should they leave that old way? Or should they keep going on with it? Well, as we come to chapters 7 and 8, we come across this strange character called Melchizedek. We met him in chapter 5, and in chapter 7 we learn a bit more about him. And as we start this chapter 7, we read, This Melchizedek was king of the city of Salem, and also a priest of God Most High. The name Melchizedek means king of justice, or king of righteousness, depending upon which translation you read. And king of Salem means king of peace. There's no record of his father or mother or any of his ancestors. No beginning or end to his life. <coughs> There's no real context for Melchizedek. As we read through the Old Testament and also the New Testament, we find that most of the major characters we come across have a history. We are told that Joshua was the son of Nun. We're told that Jeremiah was the son of Hilkiah. Simon was the son of Jonah. The ancestry was important. And people were known for their place in history. But Melchizedek as far as we're told in the scriptures, didn't have a place in history. He was just there. And because of that, he seems to be going on forever. 
We first meet Melchizedek in Genesis chapter 14, where Abraham is greeted by this strange man as he returns from a battle in which he was successful. And Melchizedek is seen in that interaction to be a superior person to Abraham. Because Melchizedek is superior to Abraham, Melchizedek is described as a priest of God. Abraham became the ancestor of the Old Testament priesthood, the ancestor of Aaron and all the priests who followed him. Because of Melchizedek's superiority, it seemed that his priesthood is superior to that of Aaron and the Levitical priests. So what? What does that mean to us? What is the significance of that issue? Well, going back to the beginning, God created a perfect world. He created perfect people and put them in it. And then, of course, came sin, and the perfection was gone. In just three chapters of the Bible, perfection disappears. And the whole of the rest of the Bible is all about correcting that problem, bringing things back to where they ought to be. God called Abraham to be the ancestor of a people who would share his word with the world. He gave some promises to Abraham. He promised that he would have many descendants, as many as the stars in the sky, or the sea itself on the seashore. He promised that his descendants would become a blessing to the entire world. And what happened? Well, his descendants became slaves in Egypt, didn't they? And then God called Moses. And Moses was sent to rescue God's people from from Egypt, led them out into the desert, and there God gave Moses the law. This is the Old Testament law that we find in the books of Exodus, Leviticus, Deuteronomy, in our Old Testament. The problem is, humanity's number one problem is sin. So this law, did it fix it? Did it fix the problem? No, it didn't. What the law did was to demonstrate the reality of sin. It was to demonstrate the need for forgiveness for sin and to demonstrate the impossibility of anyone being able to earn forgiveness because nobody could keep the law. The law was a shadow. The law was just temporary. As we read on a couple of chapters ahead in Hebrews, our writer says, it is not possible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. But that was the mainstay of the old legal system. You brought your animal sacrifices to the temple and they were offered to God for forgiveness for your sins. But didn't work. As we read on in chapter 7, 
we read, if the priesthood of Levi, on which the law was based, could have achieved the perfection God intended, why did God need to establish a different priesthood with a priest in the order of Melchizedek instead of the order of Levi and Aaron? When I headed off to college in 1964, I tucked under my arm my faithful little portable typewriter so I could write my notes and actually be able to read them afterwards. It was good. And it did a great job. Fantastic. I could type out all my notes. If I wanted an extra copy of something, I could put a piece of carbon paper in there and get a second copy, even a third copy if I wanted. And it was good. And if I made a mistake, no problem. I got a little bottle of correcting fluid and I could paint out the words that were wrong and retype them. Fine. It was so good. Until, until along came the personal computer, who did everything that the typewriter did and did it so much better and a whole lot more as well. The typewriter was good, but now, if you want to find a typewriter, you probably need to go to a museum. You don't find many around these days. It was not perfect, but it was a valuable interim solution. So what is the real answer to the problem that we're faced with? Something new and better is needed, just like the computer was so much better than the typewriter. The Old Testament priesthood was a time of preparation. It promoted an awareness of sin, but it couldn't take it away. Paul, again, writing to the Galatians, says, let me put it another way. The law was our guardian until Christ came. It protected us until we could be made right with God through faith. The priesthood of Aaron was earthbound. It was concerned with externals. If you wanted to be a priest under the old covenant, you had to be a descendant of Aaron. Nobody could put their hand up and say, oh, I'd like to be a priest. No way. Unless you could trace your ancestry back to Aaron, the first high priest, you couldn't be one. Physical descent was essential. The material shrine was essential. When God first gave the law to Moses in the desert, he instructed Moses to build a special tent in which people could offer their sacrifices and meet with God. Later, Solomon converted that tent into a temple. And there the people would go to offer their sacrifices. But without the temple, or without the tent, you couldn't offer a sacrifice. Do these sacrifices take away sins? Well, if you thought they did, you didn't have much hope if you didn't live in the right place or go to the right place. The material shrine was vital. The animal sacrifices were vital. And yet it was all temporary, it was all transient. 
as our writer continues in chapter 7, the law never made anything perfect. There was no peace of conscience. There was no real access to God. In fact, the law was really designed to keep people at a distance from God. Because there were only, we read in the Old Testament, certain people communicated with God, and yet the mass of the people just came along, made their sacrifices, handed their animals over to the priests, and that was as close as they got. We need a priest who can bring us near to God. A priest with never-ending power, saving power. And we need an approach to God which is always open. And who is that? Paul writes to the Roman church, Who dares accuse us whom God has chosen for his own? No one. For Christ Jesus is sitting in the place of honour at God's right hand, pleading for us. Under the old system, Aaron and his descendants had to offer sacrifices for their own sins because they were just as much sinners as everybody else. The first century historian Josephus records that there were 83 high priests from the time of Aaron through to the time in AD 70 when the Romans finally destroyed the temple and the sacrificial system was finished forever. 83 high priests. And each one had to offer sacrifices for their own sins before they could offer sacrifices for the sins of others. The old system had to be replaced. We come along to the old, we look at, come to chapter 8, and we look at the old compared to the new. The old priesthood had to give way to a new priesthood. The earthly sanctuary where people had to bring their sacrifices was to be replaced by a heavenly sacrifice where Jesus ever lives to make intercession for us. The temporary sacrifices are replaced by one eternal sacrifice. The Old Testament sacrifices just didn't last. You had to keep on making them again and again and again. Every year, the high priest would offer a special sacrifice for the whole nation. But we need a sacrifice which lasts forever. Reading on in Hebrews 8, we read, Now Jesus, our high priest, has been given a ministry that is far superior to the old priesthood. For he is the one who mediates for us a far better covenant with God based on better promises. Our high priest ministers in the real sanctuary, in heaven, not one that is confined to one geographical point on the surface of the earth. Under the old system, 
the command was obey and everything will be well. And prophet after prophet came from God to call the people to repent. But they didn't. They couldn't. Jeremiah writes the message from God, but my people would not listen to me. They kept doing whatever they wanted, following the stubborn desires of their evil hearts. And as we read through chapter 8, verses 8 to 12, are a quotation from Jeremiah chapter 31, which speaks of a new covenant, a new system, a new agreement between God and his people. We read... We read, but this is the new covenant I will make with the people of Israel on that day, says the Lord. I will put my laws in their minds and I will write them on their hearts. I will be their God and they will be my people. I will write my laws in their hearts. Back in Deuteronomy chapter 6, God commands the people to keep his laws on their heads, on their hands on their gateposts and their doorposts. The Jewish leaders trans, uh, interpreted this very literally so that even today a Jew at prayer will wear on his head a little box and on his left arm another little box and in those little boxes are tiny scrolls with portions of scripture written on them. There are two portions of scripture from Exodus which speak of the way in which God led his people out of slavery and there are two passages from Deuteronomy where God gives his promises of a future and also a command to keep his commands before them. And so They carry this out literally, carrying these small parchments on their head and their hands when they pray. But now God says, you won't need that. You'll have it in your heart. They will not need to teach their neighbours, nor will they need to teach their relatives, saying, you should know the Lord, for everyone from the least to the greatest will know me already and I will forgive their wickedness, and I will never again remember their sins. Paul picks up this theme from the Old Testament when he quotes, I will live in them and walk among them. I will be their God, and they will be my people. And of course, a few weeks back, we were looking... We were looking at the book of Revelation and in the, la the closing section of that, John says, I heard a loud shout from the throne saying, look, God's home is now among his people. He will live with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them. The fault in the old, old law was not with the covenant, with the agreement that God made, but with the people. 
They simply could not obey. And Paul, again, writing to the Roman church, says, The law of Moses was unable to save us because of the weakness of our sinful nature. So God did what the law could not do. He sent his own son in a body like the bodies we sinners have. And in that body, God declared an end to sin's control over us by giving his son as a sacrifice for our sins. Sinful people will be changed. Professor F.F. Bruce, writing a commentary on this passage, writes, We needed a new nature, a heart liberated from bondage to sin, a heart which not only knew and loved God, but had the power to do it. That is what we need, the power to obey. Continuing chapter 8, when God speaks of a new covenant, it means he's made the, old, the first one obsolete. It is now out of date and will soon disappear. We have a new covenant that is based on better promises than the old one. A new covenant, new and better promises, a new high priest who has offered the one perfect sacrifice for our forgiveness and who takes us into the very presence of our God. God will put his laws into his people's mind. All shall know me, he says. Their sins will be remembered no more. The old covenant is outdated. And so the old earthly priesthood, the Aaronic priesthood, is also outdated. The earthly sanctuary is outdated. The animal sacrifices are outdated. The old is obsolete, just as much as my typewriter needs to be consigned to the museum. The new covenant with new and better promises, a new high priest who has offered one perfect sacrifice for our forgiveness and takes us into the very presence of our God. That is what we really need. Well, have you availed yourself of that promise that we can have? Many of you, I'm sure, have. If there's anybody who has not yet got the confidence that their sins are forgiven, well, ask, get some advice and help on finding how we can become one with our great saviour, Jesus, the perfect priest, the perfect sacrifice, the perfect saviour and redeemer. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the gift of our Lord Jesus Christ, for his priesthood in offering himself as a sacrifice for us. We thank you that that can bring us into your presence and give us eternal security. Uphold us and guide us, Lord, into your truth and draw us into your kingdom, we pray. In Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for listening to Jamaloo and the Lane Church.